It's Friday, September 10th. Welcome to Real Talk. Thanks for tuning in live. Thanks for downloading the podcast. Thanks for checking us out on YouTube. However you are accessing this show, thanks for doing it. It's presented this episode and everyone to this date by our presenting sponsor, the team at Bitcoin. Well, it was my pleasure to connect with Bitcoin Wells founding CEO Adam O'Brien yesterday. It has absolutely nothing to do with Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, but I converted Adam O'Brien to taco in a bag. He was he was thinking it was time for a smoky or a hot dog after nine holes at the ranch. I said, pal, taco in a bag. How do you need to be converted well, to just, taco in a like, bag? I, I think that some folks on the golf course or otherwise are so conditioned mm. I'm going to find a Bitcoin metaphor here is what I'm going to do. But they're so conditioned to just reach for the smoky that they don't consider the taco in a bag. Maybe I'll leave the metaphor alone because there would be it would be there'd be more holes in it than Swiss cheese. But if you do have questions about Bitcoin, you know where to go. The team at Bitcoin. Well, and if you want to see the taco in a bag, I tweeted a photo of it, a glorious one at that. Follow me on Twitter at Ryan Jesperson. Bitcoin well at the top of the sponsors page on our website. Real talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Sam Brooks, I feel like that went straight from like crash ride symbol right into the that was a sometimes these transitions happen subtly and we just want to let them flow and speak for themselves but every once in a while they've got to be recognized very well done on this friday morning oh, oh thank you i uh you know i wrote that song so i know exactly yes. when that part's coming in yes. uh yeah that's that, we'll, we'll we'll let we'll let you guys believe that that might get you sued actually <laughs> Uh, I see you're wearing your bent yes. stick brewing hat, and I was th- it's it's a Friday. We, we both we didn't uh, we didn't send a memo around, but the entire team we sort of went with more of a casual Friday Gosh. look today. I like it. Why not? My wife Carrie says to me, I walked out the door. I actually changed. I was walking out the door, and she's like, "Why are you so dressed up to do a show on a Friday? Why are you so dressed up?" And I said, "You know what I'm doing? I'm going to go upstairs, and I'm going to put on my Real Talk T-shirt." Yeah. Uh, so right now, rocking the Real Talk T-shirt. If you want to find one yourself, shameless plug. Can't help myself. What are we, three minutes into the show here? If you go to our merch uh, link, it's right across the top of the page on the website. You can find this. You can find the Real Talk coffee mugs, these ceramic diner mugs that you see. History. These aren't these wimpy mugs. We've got an email from James. It's coming up in Trash Talk. I don't want to spoil it. Look at this. Our snapback hat, the 950 snapback hat. You've got, of course, the Real Talk vinyl stickers as well. Perfect for, you know, the windshield, the back window on your car, your truck, maybe your laptop, wherever you want to rep Real Talk. We'd love to have you on board there. You can find the merch on our website. James wrote in and, and as part of his trash talk, he claims he was so upset at the debate last night. He claims that he's shopping for I I, I wonder if this is hyperbole. Because he claims that he's going to be shopping for a new TV. He says he put his mug through the television set last night. Now, I don't know if it was a real talk mug. Obviously, it was. I will say if it was, I wouldn't be surprised if the television shattered because these are heavy ass mugs. These are not these. You, you know, you you know, you get in you get these wimpy coffee mugs. Yeah, they're kind of more Flimsy. like, well, they're designed for tea is what they're designed for. Not this one. Uh, this one is, is uh, you know, home security. It'd be good for home security. <laughs> I wouldn't be I'm surprised just if throw the- it up. 
I wouldn't be surprised if the drywall behind the TV broke. With our mug? Yeah, these things are hefty. You so, guys got to get one. So I wonder if James is, I wonder if it's hyperbole. I wonder if he's like sort of metaphorically shopping for a new TV be, be, because he metaphorically threw his mug through his television set last night or not. I don't know. We just heard from, uh, oh, I'm not going to be able to pronounce the name. Um, need a travel mug next is what we need is what someone said. A in travel there. mug. So yeah. when you're getting annoyed and you're maybe hearing something, you know, on our mixler and you need to throw a mug. Do we really want to do it on the road? Encouraging the throwing, the, the throwing of items. That sort of seems to be like a, that, well, that's, that's like, I was, why am I going to bring our American friends into this? It's, it's that's, this is, this is a totally unfair comment. This is a completely unfair. It's not just Americans that do this, obviously. But I picture that's like a Sunday afternoon football watching experience where you're, you know, your quarterback just doesn't get it done, or there's a pass dropped in the end zone. What's a quarterback? And the and the uh, and the 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 pint glass or the mug goes through the television set. It's like it's the classic scene from the movies and the cartoons. Oh, Dad wrecked the television set again. But it is, if you think about it, quite a shocking expression of disdain. Yes, it's a more extreme expression. Throwing mugs through television sets. Um, believe it or not, real talkers, we did not plan on this as the start of the show today. <laughs> this is this is not a scripted nor rehearsed, uh, not a scripted nor rehearsed uh, kickoff. Uh, I, I was actually going to say, Sam, with you're you're wearing your bent stick brewing T-shirt today. You could always, I don't know if you're feeling, you know, you, you need the green light maybe to crack a cold one during the show today. I mean, it's it is a Friday. It has that kind of a Friday vibe to it. I might get into that in a bit. I know that we're going to have a lot of people that are going to be chiming in on the leaders debate last night, the English language leaders debate. And of course, we want to welcome your comments, uh, whether that's via our live chat. If you're watching us live right now, we'd love to hear what you made of that. I'm getting a, getting a whole bunch of uh, I mean, we've, we've, of course, been scouring the Internet, uh, including social media, getting different takes on this. And a lot of people are talking about the content of the debate. A lot of people are talking about the format of the debate. And, and not everyone was the hugest fan of how the debate was uh, structured and how the debate was moderated. And so we're going to ask uh, John Iveson about this in just a few minutes. He's a, a, a well-known, one of Canada's most well-known political com columnists. He's, uh, of course, writes for the National Post, where he's their Ottawa bureau chief and author as well. And, of course, a respected political commentator. Uh, the only thing thing is uh, Sarah Hoyles we're in a bit of a situation right now which is uh, what happens when you do a show like this live uh, and this is a bit of a name this is like a bit of a sort of a credibility booster in my mind we're not a hundred percent sure if John's going to be able to join us and we're literally going to find out in just a few minutes because he's on the road with the liberal campaign he's on the road with Justin Trudeau right now exactly yeah he's on the campaign trail with the Trudeau team uh, covering it you know he's embedded and uh he, he when he when he found out that he was on the show he was like that's great i'm excited but i'm not sure because i just got a memo right that we're we're traveling this they're on morning. the move so he doesn't know and this was kind of somewhat of a uh, an 11th hour or a, a last minute update to him and then to us because they they kind of get i mean i would imagine there is somewhat of a structured itinerary but at the same time 
if that campaign makes a decision that it's going to fit in an extra stop or it's going to hit the road early or it's or it's going to pivot in some way, then, of course, the columnists and the journalists that are covering that campaign are on the move as well. So uh, we will either be speaking with John Iveson in a few minutes or we'll reschedule him for next week. But I'm hoping to have that conversation if he's unable to make it, which is completely understandable. Then it just gives us more time to read some of the emails that we're getting. We're going to dive into some of the debate highlights or, or, or lowlights or whatever you want to call them. Some of the clips from the debate last night and we'll review what folks are saying on social media as well. Uh, I had a chance to, to moderate a political event yesterday. I'll get a little bit hyper local here for a second. Of course, you know, the province of Alberta is holding municipal elections in October. You know, the federal elections coming up on September 20th and the municipal elections are coming up on October 18th on that Monday and an opportunity yesterday uh, to connect with four of the leading candidates based on polling uh, for the candidates that accepted the invitation to attend that mayoral forum. And so it was a, a pleasure to to hear from Cheryl Watson and Amarjeet Sohi and Michael Oshry and Kim Chrishell. And I also want to give a shout out to some of the other mayoral candidates that were not and that are not polling in the top four or the top five, but still took the time. They wanted to be there. They wanted to show their faces and they wanted to participate in the event. Uh, this was an event that was hosted yesterday by seven different real estate organizations, a, a consortium. It's an unprecedented event, as a matter of fact, because you've got these huge groups representing realtors and builders and developers and, and a whole bunch of different uh, agencies, organizations, and individuals coming together for the first time, seven different organizations. I mean, some of them, their membership is like 3,500 people. And so it was a, a great event, obviously focused a lot on real estate, building, city building, development, downtown safety, downtown revitalization, property taxes. And so it was a, it was a hyper-focused conversation in that way. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's I had a couple of interesting conversations with people in attendance that were talking about voter fatigue. Uh, one fellow in particular w was picking my brain. He said, what do you think? He said, do you think that the municipal election could suffer as a result of election or voter fatigue, maybe campaign fatigue, where, you know, people, including real talkers, you know, the thousands of people that are going to download this episode, and listen to this. You know, we know that you're pouring your attention into talking politics, into thinking about politics, especially the undecideds, I think. You know, those of you that don't just automatically go red or blue or green or orange when you vote, your vote's up for grabs. And so you're listening to the interviews that we're doing and you're digging into platforms and, and there's a lot that goes into it. If you take what I might describe as this feels a little bit scold ish, but your responsibility, if you take your responsibility seriously, an election can take a lot of someone's time. And I wonder if a municipal election almost to the day a month after a federal election might suffer with regards to voter turnout and the like. What, what do you think? You think that that could be the case? Yeah, I, I'm from a number of different fronts, right? And and I think that part of it is, you know, one of the things uh, that I've noticed just knowing some people that are involved in some of the municipal campaigns around here is this election's been going for a long, long, long time. We had some candidates declare that they were running for mayor as early as November last yeah. year. And so, you know, all of a sudden there's this sort of year-long strategy that has a federal election parachuted into the middle of it. I think the other thing is, you know, uh, local races are or are supposed to be nonpartisan, right? When you talk about mayoral and council races and 
some candidates wear party affiliation right on their sleeves and that's something that they're proud of and, and others don't. And I think, you know, having heard from some people that are the boots on the ground working on these campaigns, the thing that's starting to come into it is is everybody's expecting the candidates to pick a side, pick a team in the federal election, right. show who they're aligned with. And so you add that on top of each other, plus these campaigns often draw from the same pool of volunteers and now they're split between two different elections. Yeah. And it's, you're right, it's, it's, I mean, I've even just noticed out walking my dog and and because there's a council race and a school board race and a federal race and a mayoral race i've seen some houses with four lawn signs you know what i loved i saw the other day one house that had two signs for two different political parties i've seen that too yeah i actually love that yeah me too Uh, first of all to me it represents well, <laughs> I was going to say it represents a healthy household. It also might represent a completely dysfunctional household. But I like to see it. I like that that one. I mean, you know, I'm not. It's not the 1950s where I'm like one spouse, but like whatever the living scenario is. But it's not like one person's picking for both. Yeah, heck no. Which I, I think, hope but not. I think that that's the case in a lot of households. I think one person picks for both. Ick. We're talking about standard two person households, and and I know that there's a lot of caveats and asterisks, Gross. and but right. But I do think that that's the case, like it or not. I liked seeing that there were two different signs. Do you think that voter fatigue could be a thing? Do you think that the municipal elections... Keep in mind that there are some there are some referendum implications here. I'm not talking so much about the do you want you know the federal government to eliminate the whatever from the equalization. Everybody knows that's malarkey and ridiculous. Malarkey, I love it. But... <laughs> When Joe Biden said that, I was like, is he like being funny or is he being serious? It's a great word, though. Uh, but but the daylight savings saving time one might be of interest or significance to some people. I don't think it's a huge driver to get people out to the polls, but that may, there may be some implications there. What do you think? No, I think it's uh, that's a 24 hour news cycle yeah. story. I'm sorry. No, it's it's a month apart. Uh looking at the states and how often and how long the presidential runs are like they have to do um the actual party and then they have to do the 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 actual presidential ones are like two years it's grueling so wah 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 uh it's a month (laughs) no but oils that's (laughs) it's a month of campaigning for the federal speaking of the americans uh yeah no it, it yeah it's true. But, so but I just, average, come on. But you would be described as someone that would be hyper engaged. Exactly. So if I'm hyper engaged and saying it's not a big deal, folks, and people that are less engaged, they're not like, they're not paying attention. That's the problem. That's the problem is like, if you're hyper engaged, you feel the responsibility. You know, you feel the importance. I'm speaking on your behalf, but as, as someone who, uh, thank uh, you, Ryan, as, as a fellow poly nerd as someone uh, as, a, as a person who's with you in that pool at that pool party poly gathered around nerd. the pool bar uh you know i i will go yeah of course it's not gonna there's not gonna be fatigue but but when this guy asked me the question yesterday i kind of went i wonder because if you think about it i mean every level of politics matters but arguably municipal politics impacts or affects somebody the most if you want to talk about, you know, your, your, you know, your emergency services and if you want to talk about like community leagues and, and, you know, infrastructure development and like all the things that are right there front facing. It's why they always say that municipal politicians oftentimes maybe have it the toughest when it comes to accountability to their constituents because they're the ones that are getting hit up at the grocery stores and the gas stations and the dog parks and on the sidewalk. 
They're the ones that people want to know, why is my walk not being cleared? Or why is this bike lane being put in or not being put in here? Why, why, why? A member of parliament that may be out of the riding for weeks or months at a time that may or may not be available, that may or may not be able to bend the ear of their party leader or the prime minister, that may or may not be able to secure some sort of funding for some sort of federal investment in some big picture project. It's not nothing. It's a big deal. I mean, Amarjeet Sohi yesterday in the mayoral forum was saying, hey, listen, I, you know, I, I was able to bring this many billions of dollars in for this project. I was able to drop this many millions of dollars in to you know, rebuild the Roxy Theater to do this, that or the other. And then Michael Oshry took a big swipe at him and said, yeah, your government also canceled two pipelines and brought in the tanker ban. And you could see Amarjeet from behind his mask. Just but it was a good discussion, a good debate. Always curious for your thoughts on that. Some random guy chiming in on our live chat says, based on some of the whispers I've been hearing, the debate went exactly how I expected it to go. Commentators online have their own takes on this. Obviously, Don Martin, a contributor for CTV, says Trudeau lost the debate. He declares that Trudeau lost the debate last night, but says that voters may not notice nor care. Here's what people were saying online. We were just scanning Twitter, obviously hundreds or thousands of takes on it. We picked out a few, and I'd be curious to know if your perspective aligns with that of maybe Seamus Murphy, who said, I I just don't understand the journalists in this debate thinking that it's appropriate to get the last word in. Are you asking questions of leaders, or are you running for office yourself? Which I think is a, well, but I mean, that's a fair question, isn't it? Um, Sachi Curl, one of the moderators who has been on this show before, actually had a, a wildly entertaining interview when she was on several months ago. Uh, one of those moderators yesterday, Sam, why don't, why don't we tee up a clip? Why don't we show people what we're talking about? Not the Aaron O'Toole one, but the other one. We'll get to the leader of the conservatives in just a moment. But, but here's a portion of, of last night's English language federal leaders debate. Mr. Trudeau, you should not have called this election. You should have gotten the job done in Afghanistan. Mr. O'Toole, as uh, hold, of the beginning... Hold on, this is not open debate, leaders. This is, this is uh, a situation where we're asking a question Sorry. to each of you. No problem, Mr. Trudeau. I'm, I'm trying to keep track myself. I would myself. like him, Ms. Curl, yeah. because he called an election in the fourth wave of a pandemic with fires in British Columbia and with unfinished business in Afghanistan, All Mr. Trudeau. All right, thank you, Mr. O'Toole. I'm going to give the opportunity next per the draw to Mr. Singh. You guys will have tons of time to debate, so hang tight. Mr. Singh. Now, I will say that I don't think that's the best example of her jumping with regards to that tweet of her like jumping in because right there she's doing her job. It's it can be tough to it's tough to moderate a debate in, in the sense that you have to stick to a format to keep it fair, including time limits. Right. Including uninterrupted time for candidates. It's, it's 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 quite frankly your job to protect them in a sense from interruption. But there's also those magical moments in the debate, too, where there's that quick interruption. Right. Or that 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 quick back and forth, which I think says a lot to viewers. It's telling when you see a leader uh, of a political party either take fire or or lay down some heavy fire, see how they respond to it, see how they think on their feet. Those are the magical moments. So so it can be tough and it is a real skill to moderate a debate. But as they've said, I saw one person online. I didn't pull the tweet, but someone said, you know, the mark of a great baseball umpire, for example, is, is when you never notice them. Right. The best umpires are the best referees are the ones you don't notice, Mm. not the ones that become a big part of the story. I agree. Yeah. Here's another. Sam, let's take a look at a couple more of those tweets. Um, Here's what. uh, Who else did we pull? Jen Gerson, 
Uh, Jen's got obviously a lot of experience in political commentary. She says nobody won that debate, but Trudeau especially did not win that debate. Uh, Luke Fevin follows up in response to her and he says uh, no one won that debate, but enemy Paul especially won it the most. Um, that is the like the most Canadian isn't Twitter it? exchange <laughs> isn't it? ever. And the, the only thing that it was missing was, um, I'm not sure I agree with your perspective, but thank you so much for offering it up. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to step on any toes or hurt your feelings, but if you don't mind, I'd like to share my response or my rebuttal. It sounded to me like Ms. Paul made a bit of an, just based on comments while you and I were having coffee earlier this morning, Sarah, that, that Ms. Paul made a, a bit of an impression on you, the green leader. I know that she's got a tough road to hoe right now. I can't even. <laughs> Understatement. I wish, I so wish that our interview with her would have been after everything started going sideways. We both yeah. know she, of course, her team would have canceled it, but I wonder what where her head's at right now. Like fighting the good fight for sure. To a degree, but at the same time, probably just going, I need to just get out of here. Like, what an absolute disaster. And I don't know who the next leader of this party is going to be, but after seeing the absolute piling on that's occurred here, and, you know, you talk about, this is probably, I mean, I don't know if I really seriously mean this. Uh, I haven't thought this out. This has not been written into thesis, and this could have holes poked all through it. But what's happening with the Green Party right now might be the greatest example of, of grassroots party action that we've seen in a long time. Hmm. I mean, if you think about it, the, the ish, I mean, people would take issue with whether or not it's the grassroots or whether or not it's the establishment. Or, and, and I think you could probably make an argument to counter what I've just said. But, but if you think about it, you get the impression seeing what's happening with the greens right now that it's tough to tell who's calling the shots, but it's, it's easy to determine that it's not the leader. <laughs> right. And at some point, no matter the partisan leaning of a party and no matter the personality of the leader, as much as they talk about grassroots democracy, at some point, the leader's got to lead. The leader's got to be calling the shots and determining to a certain degree, the direction of the party. Otherwise, what's the point? Mm. Right. And so that's an interesting take as well. My good pal, the Titan of Talk, Charles Adler, had this to offer up last night, says, if I weren't a Canadian media professional, I would have clicked off the debate, in quotes, the debate after 20 minutes. He says, I don't know why some are saying things here that are as close to the truth as Halifax is to Victoria. That's almost as disturbing as last night's mugging of democracy. Guy's got away with words, doesn't he? Here's another moment from uh, last night's debate uh, featuring the conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole. Mr. O'Toole, you recommend vaccinations, but you won't make your candidates get them. You have a climate plan, but you won't dump a candidate that shares climate conspiracies. You're on record supporting the LGBTQ2 community, but you allowed half your MPs to vote against legislation protecting them. Tell me, how can voters trust that it's you and not your caucus that will be in charge of a conservative policy agenda. Well, thank you, Ms. Curl. I'm a new leader of the Conservative Party, and we have a plan to get the country back on its feet after a difficult 18 months in this crisis. I'm a pro-choice ally to the LGBTQ community. That comes from my service in the military, where I served alongside people from all backgrounds, all orientations, putting the country first. And our platform, including a detailed plan on climate change is about making sure we secure the future, jobs, accountability, national leadership so on mental health. So is it you, health. sir, or your caucus that's driving the bus? I am driving the bus to make sure we get this country back on track. And I'm here 
to defend the rights of all Canadians, women, members of the LGBTQ community, Indigenous Canadians. I want to make sure we all secure a future together. Thank you, Mr. O'Toole. Now, that was one of the moments where people were criticizing Ms. Girl for jumping in on him. That's one. That's an instance where I think she got it right. I think that it is the job of a moderator. Now, you, you, you give a, a candidate 60 or 90 or 120 seconds, typically, you know, between one and two minutes to say their piece. And it is your job to typically hold other candidates at bay and protect that time. However, you've got to keep in mind as well that this is and I'm going to use the word people don't like when it comes to politics and especially when it comes to news. It's entertainment. It's infotainment in the sense that people are tuning in because they want to learn something about the candidates, about the platforms and about the parties. But they don't want it to be boring. And the broadcast consortium that's putting it on and any advertisers associated with the event want as many eyeballs on that event as possible, too. And sometimes a good moderator can jump in, reiterate a question, circle back, create some sort of accountability without becoming part of the show. And I thought that that was an example where I think she did it well. So is it you or your candidates driving the bus now where you've got to be careful and where I think that she exposes herself a bit and no, we won't make our entire debate coverage about the moderator is that if you only or if you pursue one candidate or one party harder than the others or if that's the perception you can come across as driven in a partisan sense and then that really hurts you not just in that moment but potentially uh, in some circumstances for the rest of your career i mean you look at the the fire that rosie barton takes because of her lawsuit against the conservative party of canada last federal election right people are saying she sued the party and there's a big story there. There's a big, long story there. And it's not necessarily what it looks like at the surface. But people have, you know, intimated that she shouldn't be involved in the debate. One of one of Canada's, in my mind, most skilled political commentators, Rosie Barton. So that's an interesting example there. You can let us know what you think. We've got a political panel coming up in just a few minutes. I'm really looking forward to it. Talk at RyanJesperson.com is where you can reach us. It's great to have people tuning in from all over the place mm-hmm. right now. I know that there's a group having coffee right now, a, 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 gr- a group gathered down in Calgary with some special guests from Stony Plain and from Altadena, California that are tuned in watching Real Talk this morning. A shout out to everybody that that makes it in live for our American friends. Want to let you know that coming up in about an hour, Seth Radwell is going to join us. Uh, He's the author of American Schism, uh, how the two enlightenments hold the secret to healing our nation. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that 9-11 happened 20 years ago tomorrow. It's wild. I don't have to ask. I mean, I feel like I don't even have to ask if this is a moment where you'll always remember where you were, because I think for every person at least those in North America. But I think that for almost every person on planet Earth, at least one with access, and this was even before the date. I mean, there was no Twitter. Can you imagine if there was Twitter on 9-11? Can you imagine if there was Instagram on 9-11? Some of the video that we would have been seeing. I mean, if there had been TikTok on 9-11, the video that people would have been posting from firsthand perspectives, right? In in New York City, right there at ground zero. Uh, But still... The images have, have seared themselves into our memories and into our consciousness. And, of course, the impact uh, on American foreign policy, on Canada's foreign policy, the impact on global security, Afghanistan, uh, uh, you know, ir- Iraq. I mean, if you want to get I mean, wow. Right. So 20 years, there's a lot that's happened, but we will look back. That's coming up in about an hour on the show and our political roundtable coming up as well. I wanted to make a personal note. Laurel 
is tuned in live this morning on our chat and she says good morning to everyone but especially julie Rohr. she says you are in my thoughts julie was on the show on tuesday morning if you missed it um julie describes herself uh you know as an end stage cancer patient just an absolutely remarkable person and it was such a meaningful conversation that we had julie has been a huge part of this show from its inception she's one of the founding members of our editorial board and and julie let us know the general public uh by way of of her instagram and her social media you can follow her at julie roar yeg that's r-o-h-r y-e-g julie roar yeg she let us know last night that she's moving into hospice care today and so our thoughts are with julie as well and Laurel, I really appreciate you bringing that up because we vow every morning to keep it real. And so uh, in this instance, keeping it real means that we hold emotions at bay while we continue to talk. But I know that we gather in community here and it really does mean a lot. I've told you on Saturday tomorrow that my wife, Carrie, and I are really excited to be hosting a, a bit of a homecoming party. And if you happen to be in the central or northern Alberta region, we'd love for you to join us. It's the homecoming at DeRoche Villages coming up tomorrow. That's Saturday, September 11th. We're going to be hosting an opportunity for you to check out some of the incredible show homes at this beautiful and innovative new neighborhood it is deroche villages a back to school back to work here goes the football season classic tailgate homecoming party your chance to tour at a distance on your own wearing a mask to your comfort beautiful new show homes by daytona jamin landmark and pace setter we've got food there from freezing brothers of course what's a tailgater without some beautiful new trucks to check out we're going to have live music we're going to be hanging out there we'd love to meet you real talkers and the first 75 people to sign up for a show home tour and there's no pressure this isn't a weird timeshare thing trust me we wouldn't endorse something like that your chance at your leisure as they say to tour these show homes if you're one of the first 75 to register we're going to put four tickets to the football game into your hand you going to the game coming up on saturday that i'm going to yeah edmonton elks calgary stampeders at commonwealth stadium the first 75 people to sign up for a show home tour get four tickets each to go check out that football game you can sign up go to my twitter account at ryan jesperson i have it pinned right at the top of the page just follow the link and we hope to see you tomorrow at the homecoming, the tailgater at DeRoche Villages. Our friends at Westworld Computers want us to remind you that their Back to the Future school and work sale is on now. When you buy a new Mac with Apple Care Plus at Westworld, they're gonna give you up to $100 to spend on awesome accessories. If a new iPad Pro is on your list, like the one that I use when I do the show with Apple Care Plus, you'll receive $50 of instant savings on accessories. And, and get this, if you're somebody Maybe you're looking for a new gig and you're, you know, I don't know, maybe not wanting to work at the big white box. This is their wink, wink, nudge, nudge. If you love Apple products, but you don't want to work at the big white box. If you have a passion for tech, then Daryl and his crew at Westworld want to hear from you. If you're looking for a new gig, email employment at westworld.ca. 
political roundtable coming up in uh, just a moment. We've got uh, three guests that are going to be joining us, and I'm quite excited about it. Uh, they'll be making their Real Talk debuts. Zara Sultani, Karamvir Lal, and Esmahan Razavi. And we're going to get into not just last night's leaders debate, but of course the campaign as well and the, the bigger issues at play. Trash Talk is coming up a little bit later in the show as well. Your opportunity to fit in so a little a little bit of uh, what, what do you want to call this a cathartic exercise of blowing off steam there, there's a lot of steam to be blown off these days as evidenced by our email inbox and i'm not sure if we still have we always it typically when we mention trash talk at the beginning of a show on friday we'll receive a couple of submissions during that show so we maybe have a little bit of time we might have a little bit of time to get in to, to fit in a couple more trash talk emails we'll see how that goes um the political roundtable coming up in just a moment you know what i think we'll do sam can we take two now and add in a third later or does that complicate matters from your end yeah, yeah as long as we get a bit of a break when the third okay shows you up, just so let me know yeah, when the third shows that, up sure. because i believe we have two ready to rock right now yeah so we have karen veer and s man with me right now is that correct i'm understanding who we have yes okay well why don't we do this so we're going to get into this and and zara sultani will join us uh momentarily uh you know this is how we roll on the flight karen veer law formerly a political staffer for the united conservative caucus in alberta and uh experience working in the war room for the federal conservative campaign back in 2019 uh karen veer is currently an articling student at an edmonton area law firm esman razavi is an associate principal at champion communications and public relations a proud community builder who spends a whole bunch of her free time volunteering for causes she believes in and i want to get into that as well because a lot of that has to do with political engagement uh, to the both of you welcome to the show thanks for making time for us uh this morning s man why do we why don't we begin with you your uh your impression last night of that federal leaders debate it's it's being suggested by some commentators that there was no clear winner but of all of those that didn't win justin trudeau didn't win the most what's your assessment I think we may have uh, lost connection. Yeah, really oh, here we go. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry to step on your toes. I think we have you here. That's okay. Um, thank you for this might be a problem, Sam. So Sam's going to figure this out. Then uh, this is uh, this is where the rubber hits the road for you, my friend, my producer, because we've got one panelist not showing up, one without Wi-Fi. You know what we can do is Sam's going to work on that and I'm going to get to some emails. All right. We're going to figure it out. We're going to problem solve and we're going to get into it. It leaves some more time as well for us to get to some live audience commentary as well to drop it into the live chat here. I'm seeing that some of you are asking more for more details on taco in a bag which we could always go back to that as well but i suspect this audience is more keen on hearing about the federal election and the and the debate last night i was reading a piece uh this was published in the globe and mail last night by their television critic john doyle mm. uh now you know you get your political commentators to chime in on something like the federal leaders debate but when you get a television critic chiming in on it, it has a bit of a different angle to it because they're evaluating the value or, 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 you know, the, the ROI, the return on investment of the broadcast consortium, did this deliver as a television event? And I thought that there was some pretty bang on commentary by John Doyle. He says this was not a debate. He says, as a matter of fact, it was a farce. Hmm. He says the fact that political leaders even agreed to participate in the format is an indictment of their collective intelligence. Now, that's a tough take because as a political leader, there's no way you pull out of a debate like that a federal leaders debate because you don't like the format. I don't think it plays well. I don't think it looks good. 
But he says every election campaign is essentially the selling of people and policies, mainly through television. But the leaders debate is where TV and politics truly intersect. And here's where he takes a shot at the moderator. At Sachi Curl, he says she took the view that her job was to stop the leaders from talking. And he said it was a peculiar tack to take. At its best, he says, television coverage isolates and highlights the strengths and flaws of individuals. It goes to the core. It can push aside propaganda and posturing. He says that's why U.S. debates proceed with deep seriousness. But he says here in Canada, in debate after debate, the event has descended into bickering and masquerade. He says Thursday's television event was like an episode of Family Feud from Hell. He goes on to say, no one trying to determine who won, he says a cat would cackle at that question. Given the ridiculous format, given Curl's persistent interruptions, the only winner was the moderator's attitude. He says apparently the format was to sometimes allow a leader to answer a direct question, but also to allow interruptions from another speaker. And at that point, the original speaker told to Shut up. He says it's a Baroque interpretation of debate that was particularly injurious to liberal leader Justin Trudeau. So that's a take from the television critic, John Doyle from the Globe and Mail. That's clickbait. That whole thing is clickbait, dude. That article. What don't you like about it? He's just using really inflammatory language. And I personally think that it was. And I also wonder, like, they're being really tough on the moderator. Really tough. Uh, And I. I don't know. I question what the motivation behind that is. Interesting. What um, are you implying? I don't it's want, called real talk. Just say it. I just, I don't want to get. You think it's because she's a woman? You think she's a woman of color? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Do you think it's a subtlety or do you think it's blatant? I think it's blatant. Yeah. You know, let me say this and, and I won't comment on that. I mean, that's your take on it. My thought is that when it comes to moderating and this is people will say that I'm that I'm a, a little bit wishy-washy here, but I do think it's a gray area because on one hand and trust me, hey, I moderated something literally just yesterday. I've moderated dozens of these types of events. Mm-hmm. And so I'm coming from a position where I can understand being in those shoes, not moderating a federal leaders debate, but I moderated a federal or rather a mayoral panel just yesterday. And it's your job on one hand, like we said, to be that baseball umpire. To be the one that's simply calling the shots, fair to everybody, keeping the event on track, on time, respecting the format and sticking to it. But on the other hand, there's also room for some personality. There's also room to infuse something that you bring that somebody else might not bring. Sachi Curl would moderate it differently than former national anchor Peter Mansbridge. Right. And I'm dropping his name because I'd like you to maybe make an announcement right now, if you don't mind. Peter's going to join us on the show coming up in just a little bit. Yeah. October 4th. Very He's, much looking forward yeah. to that. So so Sachi Curl is going to be different than Peter Mansbridge is going to be you know different than Rosie Barton is going to be different than Justin Ling. Right. They're all going to moderate that debate differently based on their personality, based on how they're wired. Now, the question is, at what point do you open yourself to criticism that you're trying to make the debate about you or that you're stealing the spotlight or that you're hurting a certain candidate or all of them by breaking that format. And that's where I think the gray area comes in with regards to people speaking about last night. Absolutely. But I mean, what about Evan Solomon? Like he was trying to like say, hey, guys, I'm still here. I'm still relevant. Sure. He was trying to make it the Evan Sullivan show um, after he got, you know, (laughs) 
turfed by CBC because of his uh, art dealings. That, that was weird. Nah, I'm not going to get into that. I'm okay, not going I'm I'm to dignify I, that. Evan Solomon is a huge talent. And he but, fell on his sword in that scenario because he connected some people that wanted to buy some art. Big deal. But the point being, we're not talking about his appearance. We're not talking like it. it's I, I, I just really question why it's why it's being the focal point also like why is trudeau constantly trying to uh reference biden by saying build back better he he's referenced it in both debates now and it doesn't make sense to me why he's trying to align himself so fundamentally to biden now one of you know one of the interesting things and i would imagine that some people that might have feedback on our show this morning and sam we got the green light for our panelists we're ready to rock not we're still working on that is that is that we will uh no doubt face some criticism from people that will say, well, you guys like real talk, you're spending your whole time talking about the moderators. You're spending, you're not talking about the content of the debate. You're not talking about what we heard from the federal leaders, but here's the point I might make is we're talking about what people are talking about. And that's where it gets really interesting, right? We're talking about the scuttlebutt online this morning following the debate. And that's what's resonating with people. Which do you prefer of the words I've dropped to this point this morning? <laughs> Malarkey, scuttlebutt, or other? I don't know. I just I, They are both very equal. I love them both. Yeah. I, lo- I, I mean, I think Anime Paul really showed the true Canadian spirit uh, on the on the debate stage. She really tried to bring it back and bring it back to how it actually then manifests when they're in Parliament, uh, saying, you know, we need to find a common ground. I think COVID really showcased how common ground can be found and how the different parties can work together. I thought that was the strongest. All right, we're ready to rock right now. Uh, I'm looking forward to this panel of political pundits. Uh, I know that that all three of them are coming from different positions as, as communication strategists, as campaign strategists. But I've, 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 I've wanted to issue a warning of some sort to this point already where I said, I'm hoping that all three of you will be willing to get a little bit personal to talk about how these campaigns are resonating with you, to talk about your impression of the debate, to talk about your impression. I mean, hey, why don't we begin with whether or not this was even necessary in the first place? Esmahan Razavi is joining us, Karim Lal and Zara Sultani. It's great to have the three of you here. Esmahan, I, I thank you for accommodating our request to, to find a better connection. I can see you now clearly, which is wonderful. Why don't we try this again? Let's start from the top. Your general impression of last night's English language leaders debate. First of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, so I think that a lot of people probably tuned out of last night's debate because I, I'm not going to criticize the moderator. I actually think the format was a bit of a problem. The leaders couldn't respond to each other, um, which I think is what you want to see in a debate. You want to see them engaging with each other the same way that um, we saw them engaging in the first debate, the first French debate, which I watched with my grade nine French and uh, really enjoyed. Um, so I, I don't think it was a really effective way of informing the voters of seeing what, um, what the policies are that the leaders were putting forward. I do think, though, that because we are like, three or almost three weeks into this campaign, people are now familiar with where the leaders are and that, you know, what they saw on stage was um, three articulations of the visions that they've been hearing for the last three weeks um, with the addition of Annamie Paul, who uh, I think is a really important presence as the first, um, you know, black woman Canadian leader on stage. Karen Veer, your, your, your general impressions after last night? 
Right. So I, I actually quite enjoyed, you know, watching the debate. I think it had a fair amount of, you know, entertainment value um, in terms of like, you know, policy substance. I agree with my, uh, you know, previous panelists. There wasn't too much there. Um, but, you know, I, I think that uh, the, the purpose of these debates, uh, at least from the um, perspective of the campaigns, is to really, you know, get a, the impression of the leader across to the public. It's not so much the... Um, the policy that they're they're looking to get across, because I think voters who are interested in policy can you know always look at a uh, policy platform or you know statements by the individual political parties. But here they're looking for more immutable things, like you know who can they trust to run their country, and for stuff like that, that's really formed on um, you know your basic first impressions with. Um, with voters and Canadians. And I think, you know, uh, folks are pretty familiar with Justin Trudeau. People are pretty familiar with Jagmeet Singh. Uh, they're less familiar with Aaron O'Toole and Anime Paul. So I think it was really their opportunity to showcase, you know, what they were all about. And I thought that they did a good job. Karen Beer, I think you you're bang on and I totally agree with you with regard. I'm not going to say and I know you're not saying this either that substance doesn't matter because uh, if you don't bring substance or if you don't bring, you know, something, you know, deeper than the shallow end with regards to policy, you'll get piled on for it. But you're absolutely right. One of the things I think that a debate allows for is an opportunity to see how a politician, how a party leader responds to criticism, how they can dole out criticism, how they can think on their feet, how they can interrupt something that, that might be throwing them off message and get their track back on course. I mean, I think that that's something that speaks very loudly. And that's one of the reasons why I think the debates are so important. Zara, but after, you know, I mean, the morning after, so to speak, where are you at with regards to what you saw or heard last night? I, uh, I enjoyed the debate. I specifically enjoyed uh, Anime Paul's um, very good, um, well thought out messages, uh, especially especially as, as it related to the governance of uh, Justin Trudeau. Um, I think there was there was a lot of good stuff about anime Paul that really showed I I was already a fan of hers and I think last night's debate was just uh, uh, her show um, there was there was quite a bit of interruption by uh, Justin Trudeau which um, made him look like an angry man and I'm not sure that's a good look for someone who, who, who who's um, you know, started this election, called this election. Um, I'm not sure if that's a good look for him uh, coming out, you know, during the fourth wave of this pandemic, asking Canadians to give him a majority government. So um, overall, I really enjoyed it. Um, I'll be honest, I think after the first hour, it just kind of died for me. Um, I think it was a bit too long. Uh, there was, you know, it could have, it could have, uh, it could have easily been, you know, an, a one-hour debate. And um, I don't know how many people actually watched a full, um, you know, two hours of the debate. So, Esman, do you I, believe? I guess we'll find out. What, Esman? What do you What do you believe? I mean, with regards to the importance of of a debate, uh, the electorate expects it. Uh, the broadcast consortium, obviously, it's a huge priority for them for obvious reasons. But when it comes to the difference makers 
over the course of a campaign. We're now 10 days out. I mean, this is really where the rubber hits the road for these war rooms or these teams right now this morning that will be evaluating. How did we fare? What are people saying about it? How did or did the tide turn in any way? How significant is that debate? I mean, if, if Team Trudeau is reading this morning that the majority of Canadians believe that he, quote unquote, lost the debate last night, how concerned are they about it? Um, I don't think that they're too concerned about it because I think ultimately people, you know, know Justin Trudeau have seen him um, over the last little bit, have seen the way that he steered uh, Canada through the pandemic. Um, you know, there might be a little bit of annoyance with the fact that an election was called. But I think, you know, the narrative over the last little bit was that the conservatives were surging. And then all of a sudden, um, people started examining, you know, conservative policies. It took uh, over a week for O'Toole to decide that his health minister would be a vaccinated person. You know, there was the controversy over guns and things like that. So I think that the narratives out there about leaders are starting to shape. That said, debates are pivotal. I mean, uh, you know, in the last election, when Blanchette did well during the French debate, that cut into the liberal vote. Vote. Um, the election prior to that, I remember when the Liberals were in third place, and then Trudeau had a great debate where he gave that, um, you know, that nine answer to the Supreme Court question, and all of a sudden he was no longer uh, not ready, as Harper had tagged him, and you know people saw him as a credible candidate. So I think it's an opportunity for um, for candidates who are less known. I think the the person who had the most to gain and the most to lose uh, were both Annamie Paul and Erin O'Toole because they're the most unknown entities. Um, and I think, you know, Annamie Paul showcased herself in a way that um, really, really met the moment. And I'm not sure that O'Toole took advantage of that. Karen Vera, I'm really uh, eager to pick your brain on this because you were in that conservative war room for the for the 2019 federal election. And everybody remembers what happened there. Vote totals pretty encouraging, probably for the Conservative Party of Canada, for Andrew Scheer, the leader at the time, but obviously not the seats that they needed to form a government. I feel like I have 30 questions I could ask you right now. But but right now, why don't we start with what's the, the most demonstrable difference between the campaign that the conservatives, including you, ran two years ago? versus the one they're running now under relatively new leader Aaron O'Toole? Well, you know, I think the interesting thing about uh, the difference between those two campaigns is, well, uh, there was a lot more lead up. Because, of, of course, when you're going into a majority government uh, government, and you're, you know, uh, reaching the end of it, um, you kind of know when the election is. You have a lot of time to prep. You have a lot of time to sort of, like, you know, set the, uh, uh, the front lines, so to speak. So um, we kind of came into that 2019 election uh, sort of with an idea of, you know, where we wanted to fight that election. Um, in this case, you know, I think everyone sort of felt that there was a, uh, there was going to be a fall election, uh, but no one knew when it was going to be. Um, you know, we weren't really sure, like, you know, what the major issues were going to be. So, you know, for the first week, our first couple of weeks, the, the focus was uh, trying to communicate, well, you know, why are we having this election? It seems a little bit unnecessary. The House of Commons didn't bring the government down. Uh, Trudeau called it himself. So, you know, obviously the narrative that the opposition is going to try and push is going to be, well, this is an unnecessary power grab. And I thought that, you know, the for the first uh, week to two weeks um, that that uh, message stuck. And, you know, I hear from my colleagues who are still, um, you know, working on the various campaigns that it still comes up at the doors. People are confused. Why are we having an election current? 
So I, I would say that um, you know we kind of came into this not really um, sure you know what the election was going to be about, and I think it has to be important that the campaigns try and establish their narratives uh, early because if there's no um, you know narrative established then it's just going to be a referendum on the leaders. Um, and, uh, you know, that could be good or bad. It didn't really work out great for us uh, last time in 2019, uh, because I think, you know, the uh, images of blackface sort of, you know, reset the campaign, what the campaign was about. Uh, but this time, um, you know, I think O'Toole knew that he had to do well in this debate to try and like uh, showcase uh, himself to Canadians. And uh, so uh, on that on that front, I think he did a good job. Can you, uh, Karen, if you're just in follow up, can can you take us into the war room back in 2019, the first time that Team Shear saw those blackface photos? Can 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 you take can, like just the first few moments and what that conversation looked like from the opposition standpoint? Well, I think everyone was in was in shock. Um, it was certainly. A, a surprise, you know, when we saw the images of blackface uh, come out out of the Times Magazine story. Um, you know, I we <laughs> I, I, I think it came as a as a surprise that those particular images, like you know, were released. And uh, I, I think people were thought it would have a good impact on the campaign, but uh, you know, with with the benefit of two years now. Um, I know that. Hey, let me let me acknowledge. And I wouldn't be surprised if all three of you panelists say, "Are we seriously talking about this? Like that? This has nothing to do with this election." Um, and feel free to interrupt and interject at any time. But I'm just curious. I've not had an opportunity really to talk to somebody that was in that conservative war room when those photos dropped. That was another one. I remember where I was when I first saw those photos, and I went. I honestly thought this election's over. Like this is it. Like I don't think you come back from mm-hmm. that. And I recognize that's not a storyline in 2021, or maybe it is. But but. Karen Veer, and I want to ask this to all three of you now, with the benefit of two years now of hindsight, have you been able to understand why the conservatives still lost in 2019, considering how much fodder they had, considering how much ammunition they had based on that story? I think it was an organizational issue. Uh, Part of it was the organization and part of it was uh, the campaign they were running. Um, I think the conservative, there was... That was a time when I think with with Mr. Shear's uh, leadership and a lot of infighting that was happening within the party, I think, um, you know, with, with a few caucus members out and with, with the way um, he handled his caucus and he, he with the with the way he was leading the campaign, I think that was that was definitely an issue of leadership. Um, and when you, you you could have the best you know the the best uh, gifts if if you, you know one might say you could have the best gifts that your opponents can give you uh, during an during a campaign, but if you're not able to actually use that gift, and if you're not uh, able to uh, lead your campaign the way you know. The way that you know 
the, the proper way. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know how to uh, how to put this. Um, I feel like you're be, you're you're, it, it, it you're was, trying to be a, so diplomatic right now. I I feel like you should just start slinging. <laughs> I, you're being so diplomatic was, right now. Well, no. With 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 Mr. Shear, there was a huge lack of leadership. Um, the 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 campaign was very just mellow and and not inspiring. So when there is no, <clears throat> excuse me, when there is no alternative for voters and, you know, even if you have Trudeau with blackface, um, they, they weren't able to take advantage of it because they, they simply didn't have the skills, uh, you know, necessary, the skills that are necessary to, to turn that into some results for themselves. So know? then, so then the work began like, you know, weeks after that election as man, obviously, right? Like, you know, the, 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 uh, Andrew Shear essentially resigns as leader of the party. They, they clean house in, in the leader's office for obvious reasons. And his, his top staffers, communications, professional strategists were all, uh, shuttled off to other opportunities across the country. Um, and then that paves the way for a leadership race, which, of course, for a party can be an exciting time, right? Time to generate interest, obviously a huge fundraising opportunity. And through the yeah. course of that leadership race, Aaron O'Toole rises to the top in, in what I think was, uh, for some people, no surprise at all. And, and for other people, pretty significant surprise. I think a lot of people thought that Peter McKay was almost the heir apparent when he entered that leadership race. Uh, Esman, how, how, how good of a job do you think Aaron O'Toole, Team O'Toole and the conservatives are doing in introducing this new leader to Canada. There seems to have been a bit of a rebrand with him. Uh, I'm talking even with haircuts, fashion and fitness. It sounds like surface stuff, but in politics, that's very real. The teeth and the hair matter. How are the conservatives doing in your estimation in introducing Aaron O'Toole to Canada? I think that for the first little bit of the campaign, they did a pretty good job. I think that, you know, he was coming across as someone who um, is a different kind of conservative. And just to kind of go back to the 2019 election, I mean, I think the problem with Andrew Scheer as leader is that the kind of conservatism that he's selling is one that doesn't resonate broadly with Canada. I mean, if you, you know, if you have questions about whether or not you're a pro-choice person, if you can't really acknowledge that climate change is real or put forward anything that's credible, um, you know, I was living in Vancouver at the time, like the vast majority of people are going to be like, you're not a serious candidate. Um, so I think Aaron O'Toole at the, you know, at the start of the campaign um, sort of presented a different kind of conservatism, maybe a progressive conservatism um, that, you know, people are more amenable to. But again, I think, first of all, this election isn't happening in a vacuum. Um, we see that there are conservative governments who uh, run provinces in this country who are, you know, doing the worst job handling the pandemic. Let's not like, I don't want to like go on a rant on on Alberta, but you know, I think people here are like angry and the rest of the country can see how angry we are. Um, and so when you see those kinds of things happening, you see the whole like gun issue where, you know, uh, first, you know, he said one thing, then he said another. And then you see that there are, you know, um, members of his party, maybe not him, who hold pretty extremist views. And we know that in Alberta, we're being held hostage by members of a party who uh, hold extremist views. I think people start to wonder, like, you know, maybe he is a different kind of leader, but I don't know if this party is the kind of moderate party I was thinking. Maybe they're not there yet. Maybe they still need to kind of go back to the drawing board and figure out how they can have a party that resonates with Canada. 
I'm going to give Caravir uh, a little. Go ahead. I'm, I'm going to give both of you an opportunity to respond to that <laughs> in just a second. I do have to fit in a break real quick. We're going to be back with S-Man, Karamvir, and Zara in just a moment. Wanted to remind you that right now, if you're looking to get out of Dodge, this isn't a truck mention. We want you to get into Dodges. But if you're looking to get the hell out of Dodge right now, did you know that you can fly nonstop from Edmonton to Phoenix, Mesa? beginning september 17th that's coming up a week from today non-stop edmonton to phoenix mesa why not park your money in the bank and park your car at jet set if you go online to jetsetparking.com if you use the promo code real talk you can park for get this eight dollars a day for any travel to the end of 2022 Go to jetsetparking.com today. Use the promo code REALTALK to register, to book, to schedule in your parking to the end of 2022 for just $8 a day. Jet Set Parking is locally owned and you'll love dealing with them. Our friends at Friesen Brothers want you to know that the Alberta Beef Roundup is back. It starts today. This is a big day, an annual tradition. They've been doing this for more than 40 years. It runs through to the 23rd of September. you got about two weeks to get a whole hip of fresh Alberta beef custom cut by their in-store butcher just the way you want it. So if you want roasts or steaks or stewing cubes or, or ground round, you let the butcher know, they'll prepare it, custom cut it, and wrap it for your freezer. Come celebrate this tradition of Alberta beef roundup today with Friesen Brothers, Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Also, a big shout out to our friends at Dairy Queen. We were so excited to announce to you earlier this week, their fundraiser through the month of August raised more than $22,000 for the Wakotawin Society. Thanks to all the real talkers that showed up for their Every Child Matters, Every Cone Counts initiative. This month, they want to let you know the all-new Pecan Pie Blizzard Treat is out, along with the Pumpkin Pie Blizzard Treat. The Pumpkin Pie one, their world-famous soft-serve real pumpkin pie pieces garnished with whipped topping and nutmeg a fall weather favorite at the dairy queens of northwest edmonton and sherwood park we're hanging out with Esman Razawi, uh, Karamir Lal, and Zara Sultani. We're talking federal politics, and let's jump right back in to where we were just going. Zara, I wanted to hand the conch back to you so you can pick up where Esman left off with regards to perceptions of leadership and, I think as well, a very valid question on who's calling the shots when it comes to Canada's conservative parties, both provincial and federal. What did you want to say? Oh, I was just going to say that it's it's a little too early to decide whether the conservative message has been resonating with the Canadians. Um, there's still, you know, 10, 10 days left of this campaign. Um, also wanted to just respond to s- some of the issues that were brought up. Um, you know, O'Toole had some, some uh, you know, minor changes to um, the gun policy that he had, the or the issues of, oh, like whether his health minister is going to be vaccinated. I think those are the wedge issues that the liberals have been trying to make um, issues of this election and they haven't been sticking so far, right? Um, they started with vaccination, anti-vaxxers, then they moved to uh, abortion, then they moved to, uh, oh, the two-tier 
uh, two-tier healthcare and, and the private healthcare and O'Toole is going to make everything private and it wasn't true and then now they moved to the whole um, gum policy discussion but the issue if, if, if you look if you look at all of that how that has evolved from we may have a frozen guest there, so we'll just hand things off to Karen Veer because I'm, I'm curious to pick your brain on this, and, and I don't want to assume anything. So this is going to be a two-part question. Before I ask you if Aaron O'Toole has done enough or if his campaign has done enough to establish him as a moderate, do you even think that that's important in the first place? You talk to pundits after that 2019 election that would say, hey, listen, Andrew Scheer didn't come across as moderate, most in particular uh, came across, I, I, th- I think, is unappealing with regards to the climate plan. That's that's where I think they experienced problems I- I- on the West Coast and and in the GTA. But do you think that that needed to be a priority this time around? Is it a priority? And how do you think they're doing if it is? Well, you know, I, I certainly think that there's a subset of voters that will, you know, care uh, a lot about environment issues. Uh, generally speaking, from the campaign's perspective, is, um, you know, every single campaign, professional ones anyway, sort of know what the rules of the game are and uh, accordingly make a plan to achieve those objectives. Um, In the 2019 campaign, uh, we identified that uh, issues around uh, affordability um, were sort of Canadians' main priorities. And uh, we also determined that uh, the carbon tax, as constructed by the Liberal government at the time, uh, was not especially popular. So uh, we sort of decided to put two and two together, and we figured that we would try and run that election more or less uh, as a referendum on the carbon tax. That was the plan going in. And I think for the first week or so, um, you know, we, we did an effective job sticking to that message. Uh, the the problem was is uh, when you have some kind of a you know completely unexpected event, um, blackface in this instance, it sort of hits the reset button on that uh, campaign. So I'm sure the liberals were sweating for the first you know week or week and a half, but the narrative that they tried to um, to change, uh, you know, after that was uh, let's make this about the the leaders and the leadership qualities of you know Justin Trudeau versus Andrew Scheer. Um, so, you know, the blackface photos happened, you know, 20 years ago. They didn't happen when Trudeau was sitting in the prime minister's office. Uh, Trudeau's policy on, you know, race and racism um, effectively speak for themselves. Uh, and so, you know, you can certainly have a, uh, a negative perception of, um, you know, Trudeau's, uh, uh, you know, intelligence or judgment uh, as a youth, perhaps. But uh, if you compare that, uh, you know, what he sort of achieved in office, what, you know, uh, folks were saying about him, you know, he got the endorsement from Barack Obama. He got the endorsement from, uh, um, uh, you know, one of the, uh, I, I think Bernice King, if I recall correctly. So, you know, that, that just sort of goes to cement uh, that sort of credibility. Now, in terms of this campaign, um, you know, again, the opinions, the priorities, the electorate changes. Obviously, folks are care a lot more about uh, COVID and stresses on the healthcare systems, things about long-term care facilities than they did in the last election. Uh, certainly, the polls would indicate that. The um, OLO and uh, Conservative Party headquarters are looking at all those polls, and they're trying to figure out, okay, you know, what coalition or cross-section of Canadians can we reach out to 
um, that will get us, um, you know, the, the goal that we want in this election. So I think the goal coming into the election was probably to keep Trudeau to a minority government. I still think that's the, um, the role uh, or the goal and where we're headed. Um, and I think uh, for now, they're they're managing to achieve that. Now, Karen, Vier, hang not- on a second. You're the you're the you're one of the very first conservatives uh, that I've spoken with in the last month that has suggested that the likely outcome here is a Trudeau minority, a liberal minority. Almost every single one of my conservative pals right now is convinced that at minimum there will be a conservative minority government. What makes you believe that Trudeau is going to be able to pull this off again with a minority government? Well, I mean, uh, he has a huge structural advantage. He called the election when he did for a reason. You know, they thought that they could win a uh, majority government because they felt that they had the organization in place. They felt that they had the narratives in place. Uh, you know, I I sort of maintained that um, it will really be about, you know, establishing a counter narrative. Um, I'm not particularly convinced that uh, the, um, you know, the organization uh, from the other parties and like the narratives that are coming out of this election is going to be enough to unseat uh, Trudeau. And the reason why I say that is particularly looking at the situation out in uh, Quebec. Uh, the only reason why Trudeau really didn't win a majority in 2019 was because of the Bloc Québécois and their increase in the poll number. Now, you know, polling is a lagging indicator, so we don't really know what effect the um, Francois Legault endorsement is going to have. But uh, for the past week, the drop, uh, the Bloc was dropping, uh, you know, quite precipitously. And, um, you know, I think there was some Main Street iPolitics polling that came out this morning that suggested that the Liberals were, you know, sitting at about 165 seats. And of course, there's 170 for a majority. Now, that to me seems like we're on track for a, um, you know, a Liberal uh, majority government. But I think, you know, after we take into account this debate performance, the endorsement from Legault, uh, my expectation is it's likely going to be a minority and it's likely going to be a Liberal one. Yes, man, I want to I, I jumped in on our live chat here to take a quick look at, at, at you know, we call it our chatterbox to take to take a look at, at what people are, are are locking into with regards to this panel discussion, as well as last night's debate, as well as people's general observations, including what they want us to talk about. And we're going to get to some of those themes in just a moment. But there was there was there was one exchange back and forth where five or six or maybe 10 audience members were talking about Jack Layton. People are still talking about Jack Layton. And of, and of course, in, in recent memory, the best performance of the federal New Democrats was under Jack Layton's leadership, uh, more than 100 seats. Uh, Jagmeet Singh is no doubt a compelling personality. I've heard a ton of people, including guests on this show, say, I really respect, I really quite like his personality. His policies are junk or I don't find consistency in what he talks about. People will mm-hmm. find their reasons to maybe dislike where, where the party's headed, but people find him undeniably likable. No. Karen Veer's talking about the Bloc Québécois and the implication that, that that endorsement or support could have on a conservative or liberal minority government. What about the NDP? We don't, don't wanna, I don't want to treat them like just a bit player, but you know, I've seen it suggested there's a lot of talk right now about strategic voting and a, and a vote for the NDP could be a vote for the conservatives, et cetera, et cetera. What role do you see the federal New Democrats playing in the leadership of, of Jagmeet Singh and your observations to this point on what that campaign has looked like? 
I think that the NDP have run a really disciplined campaign thus far. You know, I think that um, Jagmeet in the last election really established himself as a credible player on uh, on the um, you know national stage, and I think he's continuing to do so this time. Um, where I think the challenge comes for him is in you know growing support. I think that there might be some additional support this time, but I think um, again. He, you know, I'm going to say what some of your other guests have said, which is that I think where the NDP struggle a little bit is in putting forward plans that maybe, um, you know, are seen as credible by by the entire country. And I know, you know, if, if we talk about like the different climate policies that were put up, put out, um, you know, what I think there was a, a big climate scientist who came and said that the little liberal one was more credible and there was a lot of back and forth on that. Um, but I think that that's kind of where he he needs to do a little bit of work is in like establishing that that credibility and making people feel that yeah, like our plans are doable. This is this is more than just about ideas and this is more than just about um the kind of feel good stuff that I think he he really excels at. I'm curious. This is a, a, an interesting comment from Fatima, and I sure appreciate her tuning in. And, and she says an act of domestic terrorism happened on Canadian soil and they're not talking about it. And she says, and nobody talked about it because it happened to brown people. Now, unfortunately, uh, and Fatima doesn't spell out which act of domestic terrorism she's talking about. But but allow me to point out that there has been more than one. Uh, there have been several attacks, terror attacks across Canada over the past number of years, targeting people based on faith, ethnicity, uh, country of origin, uh, etc. Um, how much of a role, Zara, do you think that talk around domestic terrorism, violence, hate, discrimination, how much should that be discussed on the campaign trail? Because I think it's fair to suggest that it, it, it's almost it's almost non-existent. Fair assessment. Where are you at with that? Yeah, I agree. I think there 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 needs to be a, a conversation about uh, recent events and the rise of um, hate-based crimes in the past few years. Um, the latest one being that family in London, Ontario, that was um, that was attacked and and killed. Um, by by uh, by someone by a madman criminal yeah. by a madman indeed and um, I think we I think there there was room there was an opportunity to talk about hate based crimes especially when it got to you know uh, gun policy I think I think that kind of opened the door for candidates to 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 maybe you know, take the opportunity to talk about those crimes and the rise in those crimes, because um, we know that um, violent crimes have actually increased uh, in the past six years under the, the Liberal government. And I think, um, I think Aaron might have, Aaron O'Toole might have um, missed the opportunity a bit. I think he could have really taken that uh, chance to talk about how uh, the conservatives do have the best when it comes to law and order, when it comes to uh, uh, cracking down on crimes and criminals. I think the conservatives are the party of choice uh, when people see a rise in crime. The same way when when 
when the country is in economic trouble, people turn to the Conservative Party. So um, there is definitely an opportunity for Aaron O'Toole to talk about that and to actually um, use that use that to then bridge to okay, there's been a rise in um, hate-based crimes, whether it's um, whether it's against um, people of different um, ethnic backgrounds, whether it's people of different religious backgrounds, and how we are fixing our, um, you know, uh, how, how are we fixing our criminals and justice system to deal with that stuff? Uh, like we know, um, the the notorious, uh, you know, Canadian killer, uh, Paul Bernard was uh, had a had a parole hearing just uh, I think it was just over a year ago or just a year ago. And the first thing that comes to your mind is like someone like that who, you know, raped um, a serial rapist and a serial killer of young girls. How is it that that person even gets the opportunity for a parole hearing, right? Those are the things we need to fix in our criminal justice system. And also... I do agree with you. I do agree with you that uh, when it comes to, you know, political ideologies or, or sort of like the big picture of different political ideologies that the conservatives claim to be the party of law and order and claim to be the party of fiscal responsibility. But quite frankly, that doesn't always play out that way. I mean, you could find a whole bunch of examples. And S-Man, don't worry, I'm coming right to you. Uh, you can find a whole bunch of examples where Conservative parties, provincially or federally, have been anything but fiscally conservative. Is it a deserved spot to occupy on the map, do you think, Esmen? Well, I just want to, sorry, I want to go back to something that Zara said, because I I identify as Muslim. And I mean, the London attacks, the attacks that have been ongoing in Edmonton, particularly against Black Muslim women, have been horrific. Um, I do think that all parties should be talking a lot more about Bill 21. But let me just say that I do not regard the Conservative Party as a credible voice on issues related to Islamophobia in particular and racism. And the reason is that I got involved in politics in 2015. And that was when, you know, the issue of Syrian refugees was coming up. That was when the niqab ban was was there. And that was when the snitch line was, you know, like a legitimate policy that people were campaigning on. And, um, you know, 10 years ago or six years ago, it was a lot more fashionable and a lot more acceptable to kind of, you know, uh, ostracize Muslims as a community and to say that, like, hey, you know, these are the other people and we're going to, like, use law and order to deal with them because they're not like you. They're not like the rest of Canada. They deserve to have a snitch line for them. And there are some MPs who have apologized for that, like Michelle Rempel and Tim, Tim Uppel, particularly in the context of, like, the, um, you know, the, the London attacks. But I think until there is a real reckoning with the role that dog whistle politics have played in stoking that kind of hate and anger, Um, it's going to be really hard for communities like mine to recognize and accept that um, we can really trust all parties um, to keep us safe, to listen to us as equal citizens and to not, you know, use this as I think it was like a, what was the term, Um, dead cat in the middle of a dining table strategy. Uh, Like we were, you know, used in the, frankly, in the 2015 election. Um, Turning to your question on like fiscal responsibility. I mean, I think you're right. 
Um, a lot of a lot of parties will claim to be this the party of this or the party of that, but what really matters is is how they govern and what they do. Um, and so I think you know I think people are smart enough to actually look at records and to say that okay, this is actually the party that's doing this for me. Karen, I want to give well, you a chance rea- to respond. The reality is, go ahead. No, go ahead, Zara. No, I, I just quickly. Well, the reality is, like, yeah, the conservatives, to my as a conservative standards, they might not be as fiscal as I like, but when it comes to putting them in spectrum with the rest of the parties in Canada, they do happen to have the better track record. The same as it comes to dealing with uh, crimes. Um, and, and and I mean nowhere in my uh, nowhere in my comment earlier on I suggested that uh, the law and order is to is to control the Muslim society. I happen to be Muslim as well, but uh, it, it it's about how to keep communities safe. So uh, I think I think what uh, what was discussed is was just a, you know a really bad campaign in 2015 that obviously died um, because people said no to it. But that's not necessarily conservative policy, right? Uh, you see that Mr. Trudeau had six years to deal with Bill 21, but he doesn't want to deal with it because he doesn't want to lose Quebec. He knows that he needs Quebec to uh, to get in power um, he doesn't want to make them feel bad and he's he in fact even last election and when it was such a big issue he refused to talk about it he refused to say no to it and I think that shows that you know he's pretty much using um, this whole narrative of like, being friendly to to different communities and being friendly to uh, religious minorities, um, I think I think we've we we can see through him now after six years. Karen Veer, it's been uh, you know it's been interesting to see. I mean, this, and this is political gamesmanship, and, and and I would suspect that maybe you've even participated in it because it, I think it comes with the territory. Uh, to to paint pictures of political candidates and 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 help the electorate understand or maybe even infuse a version of understanding around affiliations political affiliations and you see a lot of times in Alberta where I think opponents of NDP leader Rachel Notley the former premier here will say hey you know how this works structurally a membership with the New Democratic Party uh, the, the New Democrats in Alberta is also a membership for the federal party and they'll try to draw these direct lines and we're seeing it happen now again Again, as well with people opposing Aaron O'Toole and they're saying a vote for Aaron O'Toole is a vote for Jason Kenney and we've all seen the clip of Aaron O'Toole on the record saying Jason Kenney has managed this pandemic better than any other premier in Canada and right now the numbers are undeniable that is not the case you've worked in the federal conservative war room you've worked as a united conservative staffer at the provincial level how much does Aaron O'Toole have to distance himself from Jason Kenney to win, and do you think that that's why Albertans haven't seen much of their premier for the past month? Well, <clears throat> I mean, uh, to comment on the, um, uh, I guess, like the question of, uh, uh, you know, does Aaron O'Toole have to distance himself from from Jason Kenney? Um, I mean, ultimately, Aaron O'Toole's job here is to build a coalition of voters that, you know, help him reach his um, uh, his objectives this election, which I think is, again, to deny the Liberals a majority. Um, so, of course, you know, uh, 
he made the calculation that, you know, maybe the Conservatives should accept carbon pricing and uh, by adopting that stance, appeal more to maybe your uh, more educated suburban uh, voters in, say, Ontario, Quebec, that still care about climate change and they want to see a climate change policy, but maybe perhaps it's not their number one priority. Uh, so as a result, like, I mean, that's that's uh, pretty much in direct opposition to anything that the um, uh, provincial government has been saying on the issue of, say, you know, carbon pricing for the past, you know, uh, well, ever since uh, Jason Kenney made his appearance on the political stage here in Alberta. Um, so, you know, I, I think uh, the, there's obviously some sort of like, you know, brand aff affiliation that I think needs to be, um, you know, overcome. But I think for the most part in Alberta, uh, Albertans do a pretty good job of differentiating between provincial and federal parties. You know, uh, Edmonton um, in 2019 uh, elected, you know, 19 of the 20 NDP MLAs, uh, which I mean, you know, uh, was certainly not ideal from you know where I sit, but then uh, they turned around federally, you know, six months later, and uh, out of the um, I think the eight or so uh, Edmonton area seats, they returned uh, seven conservatives, uh, all but one in Edmonton Strathcona. So you know, I, I, I it's up to the leaders to sort of uh, make their pitch and uh, you know appeal to that cross section that they and uh, and do that and uh, i think um you know we'll see how well aaron o'toole does this in, uh, in a couple of weeks here but uh, i i it's certainly something that they'd be aware i want to give an opportunity before we thank the three of you for your time um to throw something into the mix that you're not seeing or hearing enough about an election issue that you wish more people were talking about a party platform that you'd like to see better developed that hasn't been uh, we talked to Grand Chief Arthur Noski earlier this week from uh, Treaty 8. And uh, I mean, he he and uh, the Sovereign First Nations obviously are taking great issue with what they're describing as an abhorrent lack of actual tangible policy on reconciliation. That might be one example. Um, Zara, I know that you and your family have a, have a story of, of, of arriving in Canada from Afghanistan. I'm curious to pick your brain on on the fact that Canada's pulled out of Afghanistan along with American allies and others, and it's not discussed at all on the campaign trail. As a matter of fact, even among our own audience, a thousand people answered our real talk question of the week last week, and 3% of respondents put foreign policy as a priority when it comes to federal election campaigns. 3%. That might be another example. So one thing in closing, one thing that each of you would like to see more discussed, more prominently discussed or become more of an issue on the campaign trail. And Zara, we'll start with you. What's one? Uh, my top one right now is Afghanistan. But to, to put it in general terms, it would be foreign policy. It's uh, how we uh, the, the, our lack of action and, and, and incompetence dealing with Afghanistan. Uh, and that's leadership's incompetence, right? We 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 lack that at the highest level, which is prime minister's office. Um, that lack of leadership when dealing with China, with the two Michaels um, detained in China, um, also lack of lack of action, lack of leadership in dealing with the um, something that haven't heard at all about is uh, the Ukrainian flight that was shut down that killed many. Canadian citizens and permanent residents. Um, 
uh, by the Iranian regime. So the, we, there, is, there is a huge, huge lack of leadership and huge, uh, you know, uh, incompetence at, uh, by this government that's uh, been putting our place in the world. Um, that's, that's been really, uh, you know, just, just jeopardizing our, uh, our, our reputation in the world. Karen Beer, what's one thing you'd like to see more robustly covered or discussed? Well, okay, so I guess like I, I, I'm going to tweak this a little bit and say this is one thing that I'm surprised that we haven't heard about is I'm quite surprised that the liberals aren't talking more about childcare and they would rather focus more on issues like, you know, abortion, gun control, things that are, are not really real issues this election. Right. <laughs> that haven't stayed like being real issues in, in, in you know, decades. Um, and and quite frankly, like their child care plan is um, is is pretty substantive. So I find it very strange uh, in terms of like what kind of strategy that they're trying to play at here, that they would rather try and, you know, slander their opponents than then actually campaign on something substantive when I think they actually have something reasonable to say on the issue. S-Man, last word to you. Um, so I'm going to pick up on the thread of childcare uh, study after study showing that the pandemic has possibly set women in the workforce back 30 years, which to my mind is a crisis. There is an excellent $10 a day childcare plan that the liberals have put forward and those deals might be ripped up um, if we have a conservative government elected. So I think it's a hugely important topic um, and we you know, need to make sure that women don't go back three decades. I'm grateful for the three perspectives that you've brought to the table this morning. And thanks for making time for us. We've been listening to Esman Razavi, Karim Veer Lal, and Zara Sultani. Have a great weekend, you three. Thank you. You as well. Thank you. Real Thank talkers, you. we want to hear from you, uh, including, and if I may, can I make this an assignment? The same question we just asked those three in closing. What's an election issue or, or what's an issue that needs to be more of an election issue. What would you like to hear more about? What are you not hearing about either on the campaign trail, on interviews, including here on Real Talk, at the doors or otherwise? What's something that matters to you that you think deserves more discussion? We still have 10 days to go until Canadians vote. I know that some are opening up advanced polling today. Uh, people are going to be casting their votes today. But 10 days until Election Day and still plenty of coverage to come here on this show, uh, including next week. Some great segments set up. We're going to talk to author Seth Radwell in just a moment. Hard to believe tomorrow will be 20 years uh, since America experienced its worst terror attack on home soil. It was that generation's Pearl Harbor. It's how it's been described by many. Of course, 9-11, 20 years ago tomorrow, Seth Radwell will join us in just a moment to discuss his book, American Schism. We want to remind you that right now online at athabascau.ca, you can learn more about the programs and courses available at Canada's online university. That's Athabasca University. You know, your kids may be heading back to school this fall, but that doesn't have to be just the kids. It can be back to school for you too, but that doesn't have to mean that brick and mortar is where you're headed. At Athabasca University, you can browse programs and courses, learn more about the accreditation program, and of course, take that next step to broadening your perspectives, deepening your skill sets, and preparing yourself for a competitive 
job market moving forward. I told you I had the pleasure of connecting with the team at Park Power earlier this week. Founder Chris Kozowski, this guy has a passion for what he's doing. I said, what's the number one thing you want real talkers to realize about Park Power? He said, just the fact that we're local, we care, and people have a choice where they get their internet, electricity, and natural gas. Let me remind you that when you sign up at parkpower.ca, you know that 10% of their proceeds on electricity, 10% of their profits rather donated to nonprofits in the community, and you get to direct which nonprofit will receive that funding. How cool is that? You don't get that from the big guys. Sign up online today at parkpower.ca. Use the promo code 2021-REALTALK for $70 off your first bill. And the team at Eden Landscaping reminding you that, hey, just because, and I'm sorry, I I know we're going to have to start talking like this, and I know nobody's going to like it, but the leaves are falling. And and shortly after the leaves fall, then something else starts to fall. And and because I'm a snowboarder and because I love playing hockey at the outdoor rink, it doesn't bother me one bit, but it's going to be snowing soon, everybody. And that's when the team at Eden Landscaping starts the planning process with the clients, with the customers, the partners that are going to see outdoor spaces come to life next spring. Now, oftentimes the design process can take weeks or even months. So today is a great time to reach out to Eden Landscaping via their website, landscapeedmonton.ca. Reach out to Mike and his team and paint that general picture of what you have in mind. Their team goes to work designing your space, shovels in the ground in the spring, and by this time next year, you're looking out at that beautiful landscape, courtesy Eden Landscaping. Of course, you can find all of our partners online at ryanjesperson.com under the Sponsors tab. 20 years ago tomorrow, planes hit the World Trade Center. They hit the Pentagon. A plane was taken down by citizens that, of course, took matters into their own hands, put into a position they never would have imagined hours before. The 9-11 attack forever changed American fabric, making an enormous impact internationally. Seth Radwell is the author of American Schism, how the two enlightenments hold the secret to healing our nation. He's got a master's in public policy from Harvard, the Kennedy School of Government, a BA from Columbia University, and we're thrilled to have him joining us this morning. Seth, welcome to Real Talk. It is a pleasure to be here with you, Ryan. It's it's such a joy. I didn't know you were such a big hockey fan, but I should have figured. Yeah, I'm well, a right, I'm a, a former right wing myself. Oh, is that right? Well, I, people say that I'm the same on and off the ice. I'm a right winger who shoots left, so it makes sense. Do you have Do you have a team? Do you have a favorite team? Well, so I've always been uh, growing up. My hero of all heroes was a guy named Mark Messier, who oh. some of your listeners may know, because he came. I was a New Yorker. He came to New York and brought us the cup, which we hadn't had in I don't know how long. And I was a diehard Ranger fan. So Mark Messier to this day is still one of my heroes. I think he's up from your neck of the woods somewhere up there. But anyway, uh, I've always been a huge hockey fan. And I hate to digress, but when I heard you mention hockey, I just had to mention it. No, yeah, we're, we're totally we're totally okay with uh, digressing and talking hockey, my man. Uh, totally fine with that. And, and I find ways to weave hockey metaphors into virtually everything that we discuss. And so it's right. absolutely no problem whatsoever. Seth, where, where were you 20 years ago tomorrow i was right here in new york and it's an indelible uh memory that 
Uh, it's hard to describe both in terms of the initial shock. I remember I was heading to work and seeing the smoke on Fifth Avenue and, and wondering what was going on. And then I was working in Times Square on the 41st floor of a, an office building. And I, I was literally watching as the towers came down because uh, we were watching the smoke. And it, 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 the next couple of months were apocalyptic. Uh, it, it, it was crazy. There were tanks in the street of New York and it was there's nothing like it. I think like you mentioned, I guess for for me, it was our Pearl Harbor moment. And um, it's certainly been the definition of many Americans uh, that have grown up in the aftermath of that tragedy. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you think of of someone that's, you know, a, a younger audience member of this show, let's say someone that's 21 or 25 years old, that that when when they travel at airports, the, the security that they go through at the airport, it's all they've ever known. That's right. right? So, so they, they don't know what it was like before, but many of us would remember or, or that 25 year old audience member would have grown up seeing American and, and other nations, including Canada, but America in American involvement in the Middle East in, in ways that may be perceived as somewhat normal or ways that they've right. always been. I mean, you know, President Joe Biden just just pulling troops a short time ago out of Afghanistan. That's really all that people have known over the past 20 years. But 9-11 was the impetus for for so much. And we really uh, require almost the benefit of hindsight to really evaluate the impact that it had. But but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you compare it to Pearl Harbor and probably even more significant than Pearl Harbor, all things considered. Right. I think my, you know, certainly my lifetime has been divided into kind of pre 9-11 and post 9-11. My entire career in business has been based on building great products and and, and building customer uh, bases. But, you know, over the last couple of years, I took a hiatus, a three-year hiatus from my business career because I've been so concerned about what's happening to our republic, to our political discourse, which has collapsed. And so American Schism is the culmination of a three-year uh, project of research and investigative tracing that tries to understand, you know, well, were Americans always so divided and if if not, uh, what were the what were the antecedents to our current divisions? Are there historical examples that can be useful? Ryan, one of the things I found early on when I took this on was that Americans are often caught. We hear about a partisan bubble that we we get news from one side or the other. But to me, we're also caught in a time bubble, meaning that we think our problems are so unique. But in fact, there's so much we can learn from history. So I went back to our founding to try to understand the roots of our divisions. And that's really what the book American Schism is all about. So, I mean, and, and that's such an important question. Has the nation always been this divided? And, and when you talk about the United States, I mean, I would imagine some people would point to the, you know, the Civil War and the fact that some people will call it the war of northern aggression and the fact that right. there's still conversations around whether or not it's appropriate or not to fly the Confederate flag at state buildings, uh, which would indicate that there probably has been a deep seated division since inception. I mean, since 1776 or wherever you want to start that conversation. But but what did you find through the course of, of writing the book? I mean, is it that simple? Well, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. So in other words, there have always been these huge divisions, and they have roots in, in fact, two different schools of thought that were hotly contested, hotly debated during the founding, which was the time of a of, of, of period called the Enlightenment. And I'll get back to that in a second. So there have always been these divisions. And sometimes they've, re they've resulted in great violence, as you mentioned, such as in the Civil War. 
But we they've also been uh, moderated by logic and reason and enlightenment inheritances about uh, observation and facts and truth. And that's why the book's so focused on the enlightenment. What's happened, what's different now, Ryan, is that most of our logical debate has been crowded out by acrimony and rancor so that there's no longer very much logic or rationale to it. Now, what I describe in American Schism, the book, is that, you know, we have as part of our human makeup, our evolutionary endowment, so to speak, we all have these instinctual reactions of, you know, fight and flight, in-group, out-group. It's kind of this amygdala-driven emotions that we fear, that we have, and it's very healthy. In fact, before we were talking about hockey, and if you had seen me uh, the night that that Marc Messier, you know, helped the Rangers win the cup, I was a crazy man. My point is that those emotions are good for the hockey arena. They're not the right approach to solve public policy problems. You know, in other words, we need to reinvigorate debate, reason, logic, truth, and what's become a dirty word like compromise, which is if you look at our history and what the tracing in the book shows is that when we found ways to compromise, we've been extraordinarily successful. Hmm. Let, let me ask you about something. You, you talked about camps, different camps, getting media from different sources. You know, you're basically talking about CNN and Fox for the most part, right? I mean, that's sort of the the two camps. You just appeared on one of the most watched programs in America. You you, you sat down with Tucker Carlson on Fox and and you took a whole bunch of criticism. You fielded a whole bunch of metaphorical hand grenades for that. Did I, I, I suspect I already know the answer, but do you regret going on the show or not? No, not at all. And I don't regret it because my approach, the whole approach of American schism is about the need to reestablish a respectful dialogue based on truth with everyone, even people of different points of view. And that is, in fact, what I thought I could do with Tucker Carlson, even though I might disagree with some of his uh, views. Now, certainly in his the date that's today show, he takes a very uh, reasoned approach by bringing guests on and speaking for a, a long period of time. I, so I was on that show for an hour and he showed a clip of it at at night. But I got Tucker Carlson to admit that objective truth and reason, our, our enlightenment inheritances are fundamental for our progress and that we can't it, we, we risk our democracy if we throw those out. So from my perspective and a lot of I got a lot of good feedback that. I think it was a very productive discussion. Now, people on both sides of of the political spectrum had different points of view, but I'm very happy that I went on. I think it's so important to cross those lines. I mean, that's that's the premise of this entire show, quite frankly, Seth, is is that we want to talk to people within reason. I'm not saying I'm going to bring on a violent extremist and say, you know, I want to sort of open up the floor for you to make great points on why you continue to degrade or attack people of a different cultural origin. That's not what I'm talking about. But if somebody believes in something is, you know, you might think that talking about a flat income tax might be a benign conversation. We have determined it to be anything but. But what we commit to is having these gray area conversations where everybody can feel like their voice is respected. And we're talking about America here, but but we might as well be talking about society writ large, because I think that Canadians and Americans have so many similarities. I don't think you're a pessimist. I don't think you're going to suggest that we've lost our ability to meet in the middle. Do we just need to get refocused? 
Yeah, I, I, the book is very optimistic. So, so what the book does, it's three parts, and it's probably useful to spend a minute on this. So it breaks down uh, the schism by going back to our founding and talks about why the Enlightenment was so important. And the way I, I summarize this sometimes, Ryan, is if, if you're wondering why it, the, the Enlightenment era was so terrific, it, it's useful to have a little bit of a longer-term perspective on looking at human prosperity, because the Enlightenment is responsible for more human flourishing in the prior 200 years than in the, the previous 2000. So, for example, 200 years ago, life expectancy across the globe was 30 years. Now it's over 70 years. Um, 200 years ago, one in five children didn't survive till age five. Now almost all do. My, my point being is that the, the Enlightenment was incredibly important because it established that humans have these two God given capacities, one for empirical observation and the other for reason and rational thinking. And that's what helped form our country. So the first part of the book goes into that. Then the second part of the book uses the lens of these two enlightenment approaches to understand five epics of history. But the third part really lays out a proposal for how to move forward. And to your point, Ryan, that proposal is all about reclaiming our political discourse. What I found in my research is that set over 77% of Americans, and this may be true of, of Canadians as well, are part of what I call an exhausted majority. Meaning that the left and the extreme screaming at each other, which drown out the voices, are not what they feel. They feel they're frustrated that they're no longer heard. And they believe, Ryan, importantly, that Americans have more in common than not. And that compromise is the way forward. Now, you wouldn't think that by watching Twitter or watching Fox or, or, or cable news, but that is over 70% of our citizens. So the book is a, a call to action for the, the frustrated majority to get their head out of the sand and to reclaim a civic dialogue that's respectful. It's, it's one of the reasons why I love your show, Ryan, because you, to your point, you do that. This is about respecting each other's point of views. We may disagree, but being able to ground them in reason and perspective. Part of the solution, I'm convinced, is to get off Twitter and for Americans to talk to each other uh, through vehicles like this. I agree with you. I personally spend too much time on Twitter. You know what? I've, one of the best things that Twitter's done recently is if, you, if you're including profanity in your tweet, Oftentimes, this this kind of warning will pop up and say, are you sure you want to hit send? And there have been a couple instances where I'll I'll lay my cards on the table. There's been a couple times where I look and I go, yeah, that sober second thought is, is a bad. I, I don't think it's going to be productive to push this out there. You're 100 percent right. When you say things to people online, you'd never say to somebody's face. And, and I can be among those guilty parties. Hope is watching us live this morning, Seth. And she says, I'd love to hear more from Seth about why what is behind and who is behind these movements we see white supremacy and in particular the radical right and what can we do or what are we doing to combat these movements okay so, so i mean you know one of the things i try to do in the book is break down some of the emotional laden topics today into some core questions and one of those questions is about the notion of what form of government do we believe in? Do we believe in a bottom-up form of representative government of the people? 
versus a kind of top-down autocratic government. And, you know, most Americans from my research do believe in that. But then to, to your listener's question, the second big question then is, who is us? Who gets a seat at the table? Who is who's considered with a, that that who should have a voice, if you will? Now, when the Constitution was written, which is described in the book for the franchise, the voice was given to white men with property. And a large part of our history in America has been about expanding that voice to different different sets of people. So the, the fundamental disagreement here is about what is it to be American? And and unfortunately, we have a history in our country of of this issue clouding almost every era of our history. In fact, one of the topics that's discussed in great detail is the Reconstruction period. And I bring it up because it's fascinating. After the Civil War in 1867, 80 percent of the African-Americans in the South were voting. And 10 years later, after Reconstruction failed, and the federal troops were withdrawn and black codes were instituted, which are, was the, pre, the predecessor of Jim Crow and the Ku Klux Klan became rampant. By, by 10 years later, 1877, only 5% of African-Americans were voting. So the book shows this pendulum swing between these different poles of vision for what the country was about and it chronicles how we've swung back and forth between these over time. So, I mean, I think that's that's what I think you'll find enlightening about the book. And it answers some of the questions about what are really the divisions today coming from? Where, where are they rooted and, and how do we overcome them? So what's your conclusion? I mean, can, can you get to a point where you believe you can? I mean, I'm be, am, am I being dramatic here in, in asking, I mean, with supercharged language, can you heal a broken nation? I think it's going to take, and the book lays this out, two types of fundamental changes. One is a set of structural changes, and one is a set of mindset changes. And uh, these are both are going to take time, but I believe they can also they can also start happening now. And you know, Ryan, I have some data that show that uh, citizens are ready to, to make this happen. They're kind of, they're, as I mentioned, they're frustrated, and the notion of rejecting truth. Is, is creating a thirst for real uh, scientific data on, from a lot of people. So I lay out in the book the structural changes, and those include things like, you know, changing how we fund our elections, changing our format for elections. It's In America, and this I, I think is less true of Canada, although I'm not an expert on it, I think our whole political establishment is broken in the sense that the political establishment has moved away from the notion of solving problems to perpetuating itself in office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's not the goal. The goal is not to keep to stay in office. And in fact, I would argue, as I do in the book, that there's an incentive to not solve problems to keep because it keeps uh, citizens anxious and motivates them to vote. So that ha- that structural uh, uh, need for change is there. I think also there's structural change needed in education. Um, and I point out in the book that democracy requires an educated populace. Over the past couple of decades, uh, STEM education, science, technology, math, which are all vital, in some ways have crowded out the need for civics education. But but both are important because citizens need to be able to evaluate data and arguments. So, so that's another structural example that's in the book. Now, when I say mindset changes, I think that's going back to your point, Ryan, about how we talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about respect and recognizing that 
you know, if 87 million people voted in the U.S. for Biden, 81 million for Trump about that, 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 that you know, both sides, you would think, think that the entire 80 million are horrible people. That's not true. <laughs> the, you know, these are mostly wonderful people and there are extremes, of course, that were motivated for reasons that we need to understand. That requires what I call empathetic listening, which is, is part of what a democracy is about and respect. So that's kind of the mindset changes. I'll also add one other point for your listener. Um, one mindset change that's really important is the notion of reestablishing the importance of truth. It, this is, again, less true of Canada, I think, but Americans, it seems, in the last couple of cycles, have almost given up the pursuit of truth as if it's impossible to, 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 to find. It's sort of like, turn it fact. I have my facts, you have yours. That has to be rejected. As I say in the book, we have to focus on truth as being the foundation for our discussion. As I say, uh, in, in God we trust, but everyone else has to bring data. And, and that's how we have to have discussions. And so those are some of the examples of the mindset changes. And what I'm doing as, as a, a result of this book, and whether it's being here with you, Ryan, or being on Tucker Carlson, I'm starting a movement which I call Fight Unreason with Reason. And it's about getting citizens who are part of this frustrated majority to stand up and reclaim the conversation. And I hope that some of your listeners will be emboldened to do that. I encourage them to, to look at americanschismbook.com and take a look at the site and take a look at the book and reach out to me. I love to hear from listeners and readers. I'm actually hosting a bunch of book discussion groups that started out from readers who reached out to me and we're doing some Zoom sessions together. I love being on your show. And there's a whole set of issues that are specific in the book, like immigration and, and like tax reform that we can get into in more detail. But I thought it was important today to give you kind of your listeners an overview of what I'm trying to achieve. I had a conversation uh, yesterday with the, f- the founding CEO of, a, of Bitcoin Well, which is actually our, our title sponsor here on the show. And he, he told me the mantra of Bitcoin is don't trust, verify. And I That's thought, you right. know what, you could actually probably apply that to almost anything in life. Uh, Adam telling me at the time in our conversation yesterday, he says, no offense to anybody, but I don't want to trust anybody. Uh, I don't trust verify, which I thought was interesting. When you talk about these like alternative facts and everything, though, Seth, it's it's I mean, with with technology, I've often joked that, the, you know, the biggest problem with social media is that everybody has a voice. And, yes. and I'm saying that somewhat facetiously, but, you know, I know people in my own personal life that, quite frankly, uh, believe that they're smarter than epidemiologists and virologists and, and doctors in the ICU. And I bang my head against a wall and I find myself right. in a position where I'd rather and I'm talking in some cases, friendships that are 20 plus years blocking them or you know disconnecting myself from these people on social media because i just can't handle it anymore but when i force myself to look in the mirror by way of a conversation like this with you i suppose in a way the onus is on me to try to repair that bridge and have these open-minded conversations but i'll be honest with you seth i'm to a point where i'm sick of entertaining some of the idiotic arguments that i've been hearing over the past couple of years well, well, absolutely. Look, there's no doubt that over the last couple of, of decades, there's been an increasing hostility to expertise, uh, to the notion of, of people who have the, the elite, as sometimes it's called. And the whole populist movement is really, which you know Trump was a cheerleader for, is a rejection of truth and expertise. 
So, so it's important to understand, but, but, but again, the, what the book does is it explains where that comes from. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because it comes from back to our founding, these two impulses. One was kind of this populist, democratic, egalitarian side, which were the radicals, Jefferson and Thomas Paine and Benjamin Franklin. And the other pole in the founding was this need for expertise and problem solving, which was led by John Adams and Alexander Hamilton. And they believed that experts needed to solve, run government, people who could were educated and can solve problems. My point in bringing this up is there's always been this tension between this populist movement that is hostile to expertise and elitism versus this meritocratic recognition that Expertise is important. So to, to, to your question, if I'm talking to someone who thinks they know more than an epidemiologist, you know, I, I flat out reject that. I, I, this is one of those things where I would not want a, a novice operating on me for surgery if I had a, a problem. So I, I, I believe we have there's nothing wrong with egalitarian populism, but if, if it rejects expertise, we're doomed. And so I, I you know, reject those conversations when when I speak to someone who talks to me. Uh, let's, let's use the hot topic in the, in the U.S., which is the vaccine. I, I reinforce that you know, taking a vaccine is a personal decision between between a person and, and his or her doctor. I don't doubt that. And everyone has the right to do what they what they find is good for them. But to deny the science, to, to uh, take facts and throw them out, to pretend that, you know, more to find a conspiracy in everything that goes on. That that is a sickness that is is hurting our society. Seth, I was and, no, I, no, I don't mean to step on your toes. I was I was just I was going to thank you for your time, and and I, and I was going to wrap the interview, but then you brought up vaccines, and I just can't. Uh, I have to ask you. Uh, we're having in in our neck of the woods right now in the province of Alberta a, a, a rather robust debate. Although our, our leader, Premier Jason Kenney, has, has somewhat vanished. He's evaporated off the radar. And so we're not having as much robust debate as I think people would expect around the idea of and it's a supercharged phrase, but vaccine passports. Why don't we call it a, a vaccine records or vaccine accreditation? Neighboring jurisdictions, British Columbia and others have said, listen, if you want to be out and about, if you want to access public services, if you want to visit bars, restaurants, theaters or anywhere else, you must provide proof of vaccination. You must not be forced to receive a vaccination. But if you'd right. like to participate in society, you must provide proof that you're vaccinated. Now, I share your perspective that it's completely inappropriate to mandate a vaccination. I think that that would be hugely concerning for a number of different reasons. But I take a very yes. strong position on the fact that I believe if you want to participate in society, you should be vaccinated. Where do you land on that? It's very close to you. I don't believe anything like that related to health can be mandated. I think it's about education and information. I think that, but you're right. When it, when, when your rights impinge on the safety of others, that's where government has to balance the, the, the safety of the, of the, of the masses. And so I believe that to participate in venues, restaurants, you need to do one of two things, either show proof of vaccination or show a COVID test, a negative COVID test in the previous 48 hours. Mm. So, so I would give people who don't want to get vaccinated an option, but, but if they want to participate, it's going to require very frequent testing.
Yeah, I, I think that that one as well, the, the, the proof of a negative test within the last 48 hours is somewhat of a reasonable compromise in some circumstances. Seth, it's been a total pleasure ever since we watched the Tucker Carlson interview. We've been looking forward to having you on the show. The Great. new book, American Schism, you can read more about it at AmericanSchismBook.com. And you can learn more about our guest, Seth, by checking out his website, SethDavidRadwell.com. Thanks for making time for us this morning on Real Talk. It's really great to connect. It's been a pleasure, Ronnie. Thanks so much for having me. You got it. That's Seth Radwell, author of American Schism. I had to follow up on the vaccine question. I mean, I was about to say, you know, but hey, you know, you got to you got to know, because when you want to talk about things like schism, which is another great word, by the way, what was it? Malarkey, scuttlebutt and schism. I think that that might be how we title our YouTube file today it's the hat people, trick. people go what the hell is going on on real talk on this friday morning but when you talk, want to talk about great divides i mean that's one of the greatest divides right now uh maybe not the root of that divide but it's certainly how it's manifesting itself i thought that was a great conversation and i and i share his i mean i already know they say with journalists they'll, they'll tell you in school don't ever ask a question you already know the answer you already know the answer to that's the mark of a bad question i think we all knew you know did you regret going on tucker carlson you kidding me no but i think it's so important to have those conversations and and we've had guests on this show i know that have been unpopular to some people on both sides of the political spectrum and for varying reasons but that will continue to do that because I think it's, you know, there's there's this sort of hesitance. There's this sensitivity now where where people talk about platforming. You know, you're platforming this perspective and that's dangerous. But I think that there, that's often used as a, as a blanket dismissal for conversations or perspectives that you don't want to have or that you don't want to hear. And that's something that we'll continue to make a commitment to you on, that we will continue to have conversations that push you and me out of our comfort zones that challenge what we believe and that force us to really examine why we believe what we believe in. If you have a suggestion on a guest you'd love to hear here, a, a topic you'd love for us to tackle, you know where to find us. Our official hashtag powered by Park Power is Real Talk RJ. And of course, you can hit us up on our inbox talk at RyanJesperson.com. The team at Kubi Energy is right now i checked in with jake just the other day i said you have every team at work right now he goes oh buddy they are busy because more and more people are finding reasons to go green before it was cost prohibitive or there wasn't the proper battery storage or there just weren't enough government incentives to get somebody to go solar well a lot's changing solar's becoming more affordable more reliable and of course it makes more sense for industrial commercial or residential applications to move forward the team at kubi energy is the best in the business they're tesla certified their installers are journeymen or journeyman apprentices and of course they've got years of track records referrals and satisfied customers including the edmonton convention center you want to see a photo of the amazing installation they did there check out kubienergy.ca today and of course coming up on monday positive reflections presented by kubi if you have someone a story maybe an individual an action a random act of kindness that just made your day something that restored your faith in humanity what a great mention on the heels of our conversation with seth did you see a schism solved 
We'd love to hear about it. Send us an email and make sure you note it as a positive reflection. The team at St. Albert in Sherwood Dodge wants me to remind you that the 2021 and 2022 Grand Cherokees are touching down at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge Jeep. That means they need to blow out their inventory. There's never been a better chance for you to get your hands on a Jeep Grand Cherokee. They've got Laredo's right now. Nice trim packages for under 47 grand. You can talk to Brad and his team at St. Albert Dodge. Of course, Sherwood Dodge ready to host you online or in person as well. You can link to them under the sponsors page on our website. And the team at Local Waste wants to remind you it's not just big businesses that are tapping into their quarter century of expertise in garbage and recycling management. If you've got a big fall cleanup to do around the house, maybe you're doing a big purge of the basement. Maybe there's an estate that you're handling. They have bins of all sizes and a growing customer base. They're a family-owned local business, and they'd love to work with you. You can find them online today at localwaste.ca. Every Friday, the team at Local Waste gives us an opportunity to blow off a little steam. It's a tradition, our favorite one here on the show, one that we call Trash Talk. Buckle up, Trisha. Chiming in says, I've had it with people who have no gratitude. Trisha says, I gave a very nice gift to a friend who was returning to the office after working from home. They received the gift, said nothing, and went about their business. That wasn't just ungrateful. It was thoughtless, mean-spirited, and stupid. Trisha says, honestly, if you don't know how to say something as simple as thank you, what are you even doing? That from Trisha. Kendall wrote in to say, I've got a buddy. Well, a guy I know, a first responder who's helping right now organize a demonstration called Frontline for Freedom. He's fighting against masks. He's fighting against COVID measures. This is one of the guys responding to 911 calls for people who can't breathe. I shouldn't be surprised. The same guy's been espousing Trump garbage, PPC garbage, conspiracy garbage, all kinds of garbage for years now. He's a total disgrace. I don't know who needs to hear this, says Kendall, but deep dives on YouTube and Facebook don't count as medical school. Jackass. That from Kendall. That's a nice fit after that Seth interview, isn't it? James wrote in to say, I made a point of watching the federal leaders debate last night. This was supposed to inform me. There was very little information in this debacle. Felt more like a game show where contestants are trying nothing more than landing witty comebacks and smart-ass remarks. It was five people talking over each other, not letting each other finish. Oh, and five people on the stage? Come on. He says, I wanted to be informed. I wanted my son to be informed. All that happened is that, here it is, I now need a new TV set because I got so pissed off at the BS coming out that I threw my mug through the screen. Thanks for nothing. That from James. This one from Colin, who wrote in to say, Premier Jason Kenney's refusal to adopt a vaccine mandate and his decision to provide payments to the unvaccinated is a betrayal of every Albertan who spent the last 18 months doing the right thing. Your continued determination, Premier, to appease the small proportion of Albertans who make up your base at the expense and detriment of everybody else makes you unfit for office. It's time to resign. That from Colin. And this one from Kathy, who asks if she gets extra credit for only integrating a couple of swears. I said, well, Kathy, you go, girl. 
That is my advance notice that it's time for earmuffs for the kids. Kathy says, I live in a province. The government's got so little value for human life. They value rodeos over businesses. Over the last 18 months, healthcare workers have been crying because of staff shortages. And in turn, the government's tearing up contracts. The health minister threatening people. The government threatening layoffs and pay cuts before bringing in outside non-union workers to fill gaps at a higher rate of pay. A government who's always late, who blatantly lies, who calls the media fear mongers, who will not face mainstream questions but announce things through Facebook Live, a government who cancels nurses' vacations but disappears, every member of their caucus silent when the premier's gone for a month, no consultation, changing legislation, a government who pays for those that are the problem versus rewarding those that have done everything asked of them. A government that leads by saying, don't do as I do, do as I say, aloha gate. A government who threw out years of work on curriculum, replacing it with racist, inappropriate content that children should never see. A government, if they could and was given enough time, would likely take away rights like universal health care, maybe take away a woman's right to vote. The homophobia, you'd think we're living in the 50s. A government that's taken on the values and ideologies of President Trump and his cronies. Kathy says, I was born here. I've lived here my entire life. I've raised my family here. I've worked 35 years for the government of Alberta, and I've never seen such a bunch of assholes unfit for governing. For the first time in my life, says Kathy, I just donated to a political party. I've drawn up demonstration signs, and when called upon, I will stand up alongside my fellow Albertans who've had enough. Fuck this, says Kathy. This entire caucus needs to crawl back into their caves. Kathy, I hope you feel better. You can send us your trash talk anytime, seven days a week, 24 hours a day to our email inbox talk at ryanjesperson.com. A cathartic exercise if ever there was one. Make it a great weekend, friends. We'll see you tomorrow at the tailgate party. Details pinned at the top of my Twitter. Coming up next week, a former Rebel Media staffer tells us how he was radicalized. We'll talk to Afghan citizens who made it safely to Canada and to the Canadian that got them here. And a week from today, our Real Talk Roundtable next Friday with The Strategists. We'll talk to you soon, Real Talkers. Make it a great weekend. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, Sam Brooks. Managing Director, Josh Dunford. Account Coordinator, Tanya Franklin. Merchandise Operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's Editorial Board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.